ascolta. Una gondola, allo scalo. Uh, good day, signor Winterfield. Good day, signora. Noi siamo in retardo di tutti questa mattina. È vero. Now, Fortun, you ought to have told us downstairs that Dr. Kirk is with Mrs. Cleave. Oh, come away, Gertie. Mrs. Cleave can't want to be bored with us just now. Mrs. Cleave give her orders she is always to be bored with Madame Sop and Mr. Winterfield. Oh! <laughs> Fortun! Besides, the doctors will go in half a minute, you see. Doctors? What? Is there another doctor with Dr. Kirk? The great physician, Sir Broderick. Sir George Broderick. Amos. Doesn't Mr. Cleave feel so well? Oh, yes. But Mrs. Cleave happened to read in the newspaper that Sir George Broderick was in Florence for the Pâques, uh, the Easter. Uh, Sir Broderick was Mr. Cleave's doctor in London, Mrs. Cleave tell me. So he is acquainted with uh, Mr. Cleave's uh, inside. <laughs> Mr. Cleve's constitution, Fortune. <laughs> Excuse, madame. Uh, therefore, uh, Mrs. Cleve, she telegraphed for Sir Broderick to come to Venice. Uh, to consult with Dr. Kirk, I suppose. Here is Sir Doctors. Good morning, Mr. Winterfield. How do you do, Mrs. Thorpe? You're getting some colour into your pretty face, I'm glad to see. Uh, Mr. Winterfield, Sir George Broderick. Glad to meet you. And his sister, Mrs. Thorpe. Madam. Sir George and I started life together in London years ago. Now he finds me here in Venice. <laughs> well, we can't all win the race, eh? <laughs> oh, my dear old friend. Um, Mr. Cleave has been telling me, Mrs. Thorpe, how exceedingly kind you and your brother have been to him during his illness. Oh, Mr. Cleave exaggerates our little services. <laughs> I've, I've done nothing. Nor I. Now, my dear. Dr. Kirk, you weren't in Florence with us. You're only a tale-bearer. Well, I've excellent authority for my story of a young woman who volunteered to share the nursing of an invalid at a time when she herself stood greatly in need of being nursed. Nonsense. You know, Amos, my big brother over there, Amos and I struck up an acquaintance with Mr. and Mrs. Cleave at Florence, at the Hotel d'Italy, and occasionally one of us would give Mr. Cleave his dose while poor Mrs. Cleave took a little rest or drive, but positively that's all. You don't tell us that. I've nothing more to tell, except that I'm awfully fond of Mrs. Cleave. <laughs> if you once get my sister on the subject of Mrs. Cleave... Yes, but... I always say that if I were a man searching for a wife, I should be inclined to base my ideal on Mrs. Cleave. Eh? Really? You conceive a different ideal, Sir George. Oh, well... Uh, well, Sir George? Uh, perhaps Sir George has heard that Mrs Cleave holds regrettable opinions on some points. If so, he may feel surprised that a parson's sister... Oh, I don't is... share all Mrs Cleave's views, or sympathise with them, of course. But they succeed only in making me sad and sorry... Mrs. Cleve's opinions don't stop me from loving the gentle, sweet woman, admiring her for her patient, absorbing devotion to her husband, wondering at the beautiful stillness with which she seems to glide through life. Ah, I told you so. 
Gertrude, I'm sure Sir George and Dr. Kirk want to be left together for a few minutes. I'll sun myself on the balcony. And I'll go and buy some tobacco. Don't be long, Gertie. Good morning. Dr. Kirk, I've heard what doctor's consultations consist of. After looking at the pictures, you talk about whist. <laughs> Why, this lady and her brother evidently haven't any suspicion of the actual truth, my dear Kirk. Not the slightest. The woman made a point of being extremely explicit with you, you tell me. Yes, she was plain enough with me. At our first meeting, she said, Doctor, I want you to know so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. Really? Well, it certainly isn't fair of Cleve and his uh, his associates to trick decent people like Mrs. Thorpe and her brother. Good gracious, the brother is a clergyman, too. The rector of some dull hole in the north of England. Really? A bachelor. This Mrs. Thorpe keeps house for him. She's a widow. Really? A widow of a captain in the army. <laughs> Poor thing. She's lately lost her only child and can't get over it. Indeed. Really. Really. But um, about Cleve now, he had Roman fever of rather a severe type. In November. And then that fool of a bickerstaff at Rome allowed the woman to move him to Florence too soon, and there he had a relapse. However, when she brought him on here, the man was practically well. The difficulty being to convince him of the fact, eh? <laughs> a highly strung, emotional creature. You've hit him. Well, I've known him from his childhood. Are you still giving him anything? A little quinine to humour him. Exactly. Where is she? Where is she? Oh, I, I've promised to take my wife shopping in the Merceria this morning. Oh, by the by, Kirk, I, I must talk scandal, I find. This is... Uh, Rather an odd circumstance. Whom do you think I got a bow from as I passed through the hall of the Danieli last night? The Duke of St. Olphert's. Ah, I suppose you're in with a lot of swells now, Broderick. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, you don't understand me. The Duke is this young fellow's uncle by marriage. His grace married a sister of Lady Cleves, of Cleves' mother, you know. Ah. This looks as if the family are trying to put a finger in the pie. Well, the Duke may be here by mere chance. Uh, still, as you say, it does look as... Who's that? The woman. I thought you would send for me, perhaps. What do you say about him? Uh, one moment. Uh, Mrs Thorpe? Excuse me. Oh, Mrs Cleave. Am I in the way? You are never that, my dear. Run along to my room. I'll call you in a minute or two. Take off your hat and sit with me for a while. I'll stay for a bit, but this hat doesn't take off. Yes? We are glad to be able to give a most favourable report. I may say that Mr Cleave has never appeared to be in better health. <sighs> he will be very much cheered by what you say. Uh, I'm... Glad. His illness left him with a morbid, irrational impression that he would never be his former self again. Uh, a nervous man recovering from a scare. I've helped remove that impression, I believe. Thank you. We have a troublesome, perhaps a hard time before us. 
We both need all our health and spirits. Lucas! Have you heard what they say of me? Yes. Oh, how good of you, Sir George, to break up your little holiday for the sake of an anxious, fidgety fellow, isn't it, Agnes? Sir George has rendered us a great service. Yes, and proved how ungrateful I've been to you, Doctor. Well, don't apologise. People who don't know when they're well are the mainstay of my profession. Sir George, he has been terribly hit at times. Your visit will have made him another man. Excuse me, Kirk, uh, just for one moment. Of course, I will leave you two to talk. Sir George, you still go frequently to Great Cumberland Place. Your mother's gout has been rather stubborn lately. Very likely she and my brother Sanford will get to hear of your visit to me here. In that case, you'll be questioned pretty closely, naturally. Oh, my position is certainly a little delicate. You may be perfectly open with my people as to my present mode of life. Only I want you to hear me declare again plainly that, but for the care and devotion of that good woman over there, but for the solace of that woman's companionship, I should have been dead months ago. I should have died raving in my awful bedroom on the ground floor of that foul Roman hotel. Malarial fever, of course. Doctors don't admit, do they? that it's possible for strong men to die of miserable marriages. And yet, I was dying in Rome, I truly believe, from my bitter, crushing disappointment, from the consciousness of my wretched, irretrievable... Uh, Chieti, Fortune? Sir, you have an appointment. At the Danieli, at eleven. Is it so late? Well, I have to meet Lady Broderick at the Piazzetta. Uh, let me take you in my gondola. Uh, thanks. Delighted. I would rather Lucas went in the house, gondola. I know its cushions are dry. May he take you to the Piazzetta? Certainly. Mettez les cousins dans la gondole. Bien, madame. Um, I... Uh, uh... Agnes, uh, Sir George... Yes? Excuse me, I must give Lucas his medicine. We always make a point of acknowledging the importance of nursing as an aid to medical treatment. I, I'm sure Mr. Cleave owes you much in that respect. Thank you. Oh, I, I have to discharge my gondola. You'll find me at the steps, Cleave. Uh, you are coming with us, Kirk? Yes. Do you mind seeing that I'm not robbed by my gondolier? Here, dear. May I pop in tonight for my game of chess? Do, Doctor. I shall be very pleased. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you later. Liberal little man. What fell out of your overcoat, Lucas? Isn't that the sketch you made of me in Florence? Uh, yes. You are carrying it about with you? I slipped it into my pocket, thinking it might interest the Duke. Surely I am too obnoxious in the abstract for your uncle to entertain such a detail as a portrait. 
it struck me that it might serve to correct certain preconceived notions of my people's. Images of a beautiful temptress with peach-blossomed cheeks and stained hair. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I mean. They suspect a decline of taste on my part of that sort. Goodbye, my dear. Is this mission of the Duke of St Olfert's the final attempt to part us, I wonder? Why should they harass and disturb you as they do? Nothing disturbs me now that I know I am strong and well. Besides... Everybody will soon tire of being shocked. Even conventional morality must grow breathless in the chase. Mrs. Stop! I'm alone now. How is your husband? Sir George Broderick pronounces him quite recovered. Isn't that splendid? Two whole days since I've seen you. They've been two of my bad days, dear. All right now? Oh, God's in his heaven this morning. When the sun's out, I feel that my little boy's bed in Catherick Cemetery is warm and cosy. The weather's the same all over Europe, according to the papers. Do you think it's really going to last? It is awful to listen to these cold rains drip trip upon that little green coverlet of his. My dear Mrs Thorpe, you mustn't. You're quite right. That's over. What jolly flowers you've got there. What have you been doing with yourself? Amos took me to the Café Quadri yesterday to late breakfast to cheer me up. Oh, I've something to say to you. At the cafe, at the table next to ours, there were three English people. Two men and a girl, home from India, I gathered. One of the men was looking out of the window, quizzing the folks walking in the piazza, and suddenly he caught sight of your husband. I do believe that's Lucas Cleave, he said. And then the girl had a peep and said, certainly it is. And the man said, I must find out where he's stopping. If Minerva is with him, you must call. Who's Minerva, said the second man. Minerva is Mrs Lucas Cleave, the girl said. It's a pet name. He married a chum of mine, a daughter of Sir John Stainings, a year or so after I went out. Excuse me, dear, do these people really know you and your husband, or were they just talking nonsense? No, they evidently know Mr Cleave. Your husband never calls you by that pet name of yours. Why is it you haven't told me you're a daughter of Admiral Stainings? Mrs Thorpe. Somehow I feel now that you haven't in the least made a friend of me. It's stupid of me. I can't help it. I am not the lady these people were speaking of yesterday. Not? Mr Cleave is no longer with his wife. He has left her left his wife like yourself i am a widow i don't know whether you've ever heard my name ebsmith i beg your pardon sincerely i never meant to conceal my true position but i grew so attached to you in florence i'll never do such a thing again when you say that mr cleave has left his wife i suppose you mean to tell me that you have taken her place Yes, I mean that. 
You knew that I could not speak to you after hearing this. I thought it almost certain that you would not. I can hardly believe you. I should like you to hear more than just the bare fact. Why don't you tell me more? You were going, you know. I won't go quite like that. Please, tell me. Well, did you ever read of John Thorold? Jack Thorold, the demagogue? No. I dare say not. John Thorold, once a schoolmaster, was my father. In my time, he used to write for the two or three so-called inflammatory journals and hold forth in small lecture halls, occasionally even from the top of a wooden stool in the park, upon trade and labour questions, division of wealth and the rest of it. He believed in nothing that people who go to church are credited with believing in Mrs Thorpe. His scheme for the readjustment of things was force. His pet doctrine, the ultimate healthy healing that follows the surgery of revolution. But to me, he was the gentlest creature imaginable. And I was very fond of him, in spite of his, as I then thought, strange ideas. Strange ideas. <laughs> Many of them luckily don't sound quite so irrational today. Oh, my home was a wretched one. If Dad was violent out of the house, Mother was violent enough in it. With her, it was rage, sulk, storm, from morning till night. Till one day, Father turned a deaf ear to Mother and died in his bed. That was my first intimate experience of the horrible curse that falls upon so many. Curse? The curse of unhappy marriage. Though really, I'd looked on little else all my life. Most of our married friends were cursed in a like way, and I remember taking an oath when I was a mere child that nothing should ever push me over into the choked-up seething pit. <sighs> Fool. When I was nineteen, I was gazing like a pet sheep into a man's eyes. And one morning I was married at St Andrew's Church in Hoban to Mr Ebsmith, a barrister. In church? Yes, in church. In spite of my father's unbelief and mother's indifference, at the time I married, I was as simple, <laughs> I in my heart as devout as any girl in a parsonage. The other thing hadn't soaked into me. Whenever I could escape from our stifling rooms at home and slam the front door behind me, the air blew away uncertainty and scepticism. I seemed only to have to take a long, deep breath to be full of hope and faith. And it was like this till that man married me. Of course. I guess your marriage was an unfortunate one. It lasted eight years. For about twelve months, he treated me like a woman in a harem. For the rest of the time, like a beast of burden. It changed you. Oh, yes, it changed me. You spoke of yourself just now as a widow. He's dead. He died on our wedding day, the eighth anniversary. You were free then, free to begin again. Yes, but you don't begin to believe all over again. Oh, however, this is an old story. I'm 33 now. You and M Mr Cleave? We've known each other since last November, no longer. 
six years of my life unaccounted for, eh? <laughs> well, for a couple of years or so, I was lecturing. Lecturing? Ah, I'd become an out-and-out -out child of my father by that time. Spouting, perhaps you'd call it. Standing on the identical little platforms he used to speak from. And I was fond, too, of warning women. Against what? Falling into the pit. Marriage. Until I found my bones almost through my skin and my voice too weak to travel across a room. From what cause? Starvation, my dear. So, after lying in a hospital for a month or two, I took up nursing for a living. Last November, I was sent for by Dr Bickerstaff to go through to Rome to look after a young man who'd broken down there and who declined to send for his friends. My patient was Mr Cleave. And that's where his fortunes join mine. And yet, judging from what that girl said yesterday, Mr Cleave married quite recently. Less than three years ago. Men don't suffer as patiently as women. In many respects, his marriage story is my own reversed. The man in place of the woman. I endured my hell, though. He broke the gates of his. I have often seen Mr Cleave's name in the papers. His future promised to be brilliant, didn't it? There's a great career for him still. In Parliament? Now? No, he abandons that and devotes himself to writing. We shall write much together, urging our views on this subject of marriage. We shall have to be poor, I expect, but we shall be content. Content? Quite content. Don't judge us by my one piece of cowardly folly in keeping the truth from you, Mrs Thorpe. Indeed, it's our great plan to live the life we have mapped out for ourselves, fearlessly, openly, faithful to each other, helpful to each other, so long as we remain together. But tell me, you don't know how I... how I have... Liked you. Tell me, if Mr Cleve's wife divorces him, he will marry you? No. No? No, I, I haven't made you quite understand. Lucas and I don't desire to marry in your sense. But you are devoted to each other. Thoroughly. What? Is that the meaning of... For as long as you are together, you would go your different ways if ever you found out that one of you is making the other unhappy. I do mean that. We remain together only to help, to heal, to console. Why should men and women be so eager to grant to each other the power of wasting life? That is what marriage gives the right to destroy years and years of life. We have both suffered from it. So many rich years out of my life have been squandered by it. And out of his life, so much force, energy spent in battling with the shrew, the termagant he has now fled from. Strength never to be replenished, never to be repaid, all wasted. Your legal marriage with him might not bring further miseries. Too late. We have done with marriage. We distrust it. We are not now among those who regard marriage as indispensable to union. You know that it would be impossible for me to deceive my brother 
breakfast for all this. Why, of course, dear. Amos must be wondering... Run away, then. Shall I see you? When Amos and I have talked this over, perhaps... Perhaps... No, I fear not. Come, my dear friend. Give me a shake of the hand. What you've told me is dreadful, and yet you're not a wicked woman. Let me embrace you, in case we don't meet again. How do you do, Mrs Thorpe? I've just had a wave of the hand from your brother. Where is he? Oh, on his back in a gondola. A pipe in his mouth, as usual, gazing skywards. Uh, he's within hail. Um, uh, there, uh, by the Palazzo Sforza. Uh, let me get hold of him, Mrs Thorpe. Oh, where's she gone? She knows, Lucas, dear. Does she? She overheard some gossip at the Café Quadri yesterday and began questioning me. So I told her. Adieu to them, then, eh? Adieu. I intended to write to the brother directly once they had left Venice to explain. You're describing me as Mrs Cleave at the hotel in Florence helped to lead us into this. After we move from here, I must always be, frankly, Mrs. Ebsmith. These were decent people. You and she had formed quite an attachment. Yes. Something of the man in your nature, Agnes. I have anathematised my womanhood often enough. Not that every man possesses the power you have acquired. The power of going through life with compressed lips. Apropos. These people. This woman you've been so fond of. You see them shrink away with the utmost composure. You forget, dear, that you and I have prepared ourselves for a good deal of this sort of thing. Certainly, but well, at the moment... One must take care that the regret lasts no longer than a moment. Have you seen your uncle? A glimpse. He hadn't long risen. He adds sluggishness to other vices, then? He greeted me through six inches of open door. His toilet has its mysteries. A stormy interview. The reverse. He grasped my hand warmly, declared I looked the picture of health, and said it was evident I had been most admirably nursed. That's a strange utterance. But he's an eccentric, isn't he? And no man has ever been quite satisfied as to whether his oddities are ingrained or affected. No man? What about women? Oh, they have had opportunities of closer observation. <laughs> and they report? <laughs> Nothing. They become curiously reticent. These noblemen. Finally, he uh, presented me with these, expressed a hope that he'd see much of me during the week, and dismissed me with a fervent, God bless you. He remains here, then? It seems so. What are those, dear? Well, the Duke has made himself the bearer of some letters from friends. I've only glanced at them. Reproaches, appeals. Yes, I understand. Lord Warminster, my godfather, my dear boy, for God's sake. Sir Charles Littlecott, your brilliant future blasted. Lord Froome, promises of a useful political career unfulfilled. Count on a... Oh, Edith Halesbury. I didn't notice a woman had honoured me. Hmm, easy. 
Jack Brophy, your great career, Major Leach, your career, oh, my career, my career. That's the chorus, evidently. Well, there goes my career. Your career? True, that one is over, but there's the other you know. Ours. Yes, yes. Still, it's just a little saddening, the saying goodbye to all this. Saddening, dear? Why, this political career of yours? Think what it would have been at best. Accident of birth sent you to the wrong side of the house. Influence of family would always have kept you there. But I made my mark. I did make my mark. Supporting the party that retards. The party that... Preserves for the rich, polters with the poor. Oh, there's not much to mourn for there. Still, it was success. Success. I was talked about, written about, as a coming man. The coming man. How many coming men has one known? Where on earth do they all go to? Ah, yes. But I allowed for the failure and carefully set myself to discover the causes of them. And as I put my fingers upon the causes and examined them... I congratulated myself and said, well, I haven't that weak point in my armour or that. And Agnes, at last, I was fool enough to imagine I had no weak point. None. Whatever. It was weak enough to believe that. I couldn't foresee that I was doomed to pay the price all nervous men pay for success. That the greater my success became, the more cancer-like grew the fear of never being able to continue it. To excel it, that the triumph of today was always to be the torture of tomorrow. Oh, Agnes, the agony of success to a nervous, sensitive man. The dismal apprehension that fills his life and gives each victory a voice to cry out, Hear, hear, bravo, bravo, bravo. But this is to be your last. You'll never overtop it. <laughs> yes, I soon found out the weak spot in my armour. The need of constant encouragement, constant reminder of my powers, the need of that subtle sympathy which a sacrificing, unselfish woman alone possesses the secret of. Well, my very weakness might have been a source of greatness if three years ago if it had been to such a woman that I had bound myself, a, a woman of your disposition, instead of to... Yes, yes, I know I have such a companion now. Yes. Now... You must be everything to me, Agnes, a double faculty, as it were. When my confidence in myself is shaken, you must try to keep the consciousness of my poor powers alive in me. I shall not fail you in that, Lucas. And yet, whenever disturbing recollections come uppermost, when I catch myself mourning for those lost opportunities of mine, it is your love that must grant me oblivion, your love. Agnes, you, you seem to be, to be changing towards me, growing colder to me. At times, you seem positively to shrink from me. I, I don't understand it. Yesterday, I thought I saw you look at me as if I frightened you. Lucas, dear, for some weeks now, I've wanted to say this to you. What? Don't you think that such a union as ours would be much braver, much more truly courageous, if it could but be... be um, if it could be but what? Devoid of passion. 
If passion had no share in it. Surely this comes a little late, Agnes, between you and me. What has been was inevitable, I suppose. Still, we have hardly set foot upon the path we've agreed to follow. It is not too late for us in our own lives to pit the highest interpretation upon that word love. We agree to go through the world together, preaching the lesson taught us by our experiences. We cry out to all people, look at us, man and woman, who are in the bondage of neither law nor ritual, linked simply by mutual trust. Man and wife, but something better than man and wife. Friends, but even something better than friends. I say there is that which is noble, finely defiant in the future we have mapped out for ourselves. If only... Yes? If only it could be free from passion. Oh, yes, but is that possible? Why not? Young man and woman? Scarcely upon this earth, my dear Agnes, such a life as you have pictured. I say it can be. Ah, fortune. Uh, Qu'avez-vous là? Uh, excuse flowers. With compliment, tell madame the Duke of St. Olfer bring it in person, he says. Uh, Est-il parti? Uh, he did not get out of his gondola. Bien. While brushing my hair... My dear boy, I became possessed of a strong desire to meet the lady with whom you are now improving the shining hour. Why the devil shouldn't I if I want to? Without prejudice, as my lawyer says, let me turn up this afternoon and chat pleasantly to her of Shakespeare, also the musical glasses. Pray, hand her this flag of truce. I mean, my poor bunch of flowers. And believe me, yours with a touch of gout... St. Alfred's. He is simply making sport of us. There he is, out there. Oh, damn that smile of his. Where? The two gondoliers. Why? That's a beautiful face. How strange. Come away from the open window. He's looking up at us. Are you sure he sees us? He did. He will want an answer. He can have his bouquet back. <laughs> oh, he threw his head back and laughed heartily. Oh, of course. His policy is to attempt to laugh me out of my resolves. They send him here merely to laugh at me, Agnes, to laugh at me. He must be a man of small resources. It is so easy to mock. Messa, signora. Uno scatalone per la signora. Uh, a box. Baldini. That's the dressmaker. There must be some mistake. Guardi, signora, look. Oh, che belletta. El, el padrone. Lucas, the dressmaker in the Via Rondinelli at Florence. The woman who ran up the little gown I have on now. Oh, what of her? 
This has just come from her. What does she mean by sending that showy thing to me? It is my gift to you. This? I knew Bardini had your measurements. I wrote to her instructing her to make that. I remember Lady Hatesbury and something similar last season. A mere strap for the sleeve and sufficiently décolleté, I should imagine. My dear Agnes, I can't understand your reason for trying to make yourself a plain-looking woman when nature intended you for a pretty one. Pretty? You are pretty. Oh, as a girl, I may have been pretty. What good did it do anybody? And when would you have me hang this on my bones? Oh, when we're dining or... Dining in a public place. Why not look your best in a public place? Look my best? You know, I don't think of this sort of garment in connection with our companionship, Lucas. It's not an extraordinary garment for a lady. Rustle of silk, glare of arms and throat. They belong, to my mind, to a to such a very different order of things from that we have set up. Shall I appear before you in ill-made clothes, clumsy boots? Why? We are just as we have always been since we've been together. I don't tell you that your appearance is beginning to offend. Offend? Agnes, you... Pain me. I simply fail to understand why you should allow our mode of life to condemn you to perpetual slovenliness. Slovenliness? Uh, no, no, no. Shabbiness. Shabbiness. <laughs> Forgive me, dear. I'm forgetting you are wearing a comparatively new afternoon gown. At any rate, I'll make this brighter tomorrow with some trimmings, willingly. Then you won't insist on my decking myself out in rags of that kind, eh? There's something in the idea. I, I needn't explain. Insist? I'll not urge you again. Uh, to get rid of it somehow. Are you copying that manuscript of mine? I had just finished it. Already? Oh, how beautifully you write. What do you think of my essay? It bristles with truth. It is vital. My method of treating it? Hardly a word out of place. Hardly a word? Not a word, in fact. No, dear, I, I dare say your hardly is nearer the mark. I assure you it is brilliant, Lucas. What a wretch I am ever to find the smallest fault in you. Shall we dine out tonight? As you wish, dear. At the Grand Vault? We'll solemnly toast this, shall we, in Montefiasacone? You are going out for your chocolate this afternoon as usual, I suppose? Yes, but I'll look through your copy first, so that I can slip it into the post at once. You are not coming out? Not till dinner time. I talked over the points of this with a, a, a man this morning. He praised some of the phrases warmly. A man? The Duke? Uh, yes. You have seen him again today, then? We strolled to about together for half an hour on the piazza. You don't dislike him as much as you did? Well, he's someone to chat to. You know, I, I suppose one gets accustomed even to a man one dislikes. I suppose so. As a matter of fact, 
He has the reputation of being rather a pleasant companion, though I, uh, I confess, I, I don't find him very entertaining. Fortune! Fortune! Fortune is complacently smoking a cigarette in the campo. Mrs Thorpe? Mr Cleave is out, I conclude. No, he is later than usual going out this afternoon. I don't think I'll wait, then. But do tell me. You have been crossing the streets to avoid me during the past week. What has made you come to see me now? I would come. I've given poor Amos the slip. He believes I'm buying beads for the Catholic school children. Oh, Mrs Thorpe. Of course, it's perfectly brutal to be underhanded. But we're leaving for home tomorrow. I couldn't resist it. Perhaps I'm very ungracious. The fact is, Mrs Cleave... Oh, uh, what do you wish me to call you? Well, you're off tomorrow. Agnes will do. Thank you. The fact is, it's been a bad week with me. Restless, fanciful. And I haven't been able to get you out of my head. I'm sorry. Your story, your present life, you, yourself. Such a contradiction to what you profess. Here's my card. The Rectory, Dalem, Catherick Moor. Yorkshire, you know. There can be no great harm in your writing to me sometimes. No. Under the circumstances, I can't promise that. Very well. Oh, can't you understand that it can only be disturbing to both of us for an impulsive, emotional creature like yourself to keep up acquaintanceship with a woman who takes life as I do? We'll drop each other, leave each other alone. As you please. Picture me sometimes in that big hollow shell of a rectory at Catherick. Oh. God bless you. Gertrude, you... You have the trick of making me lonely also. I'm tired of talking to the walls. There is a man here in Venice who is torturing me, flaying me alive. Torturing you? He came here about a week ago. He is trying to separate us. You and Mr Cleave? Yes. You are afraid he will succeed? Succeed? What nonsense you talk. What upsets you then? This man is influencing us both oddly. Lucas is as near illness again as possible. I can hear his nerves vibrating. And I, well, you know what a fish-like thing I am as a rule. Just look at me now, as I am speaking to you. But don't you and Mr Cleave talk to each other? As children do when their lights are put out. Of everything but what's uppermost in their minds. You have met the man? I intend to meet him. Who is he? A relation of Lucas's. The Duke of St Olfert's. 
he has right on his side, then. Oh, if you choose to think so. Supposing he does succeed in taking Mr Cleave away from you. What? Now do you mean? Yes. I tell you, that idea's preposterous. Oh, I can't understand you. You'll respect my confidence. Agnes. This man's presence here has simply started me thinking of a time when I may cease to be necessary to Mr Cleave. Do you understand? I remember what you told me of your being prepared to grant each other freedom if... Yes, yes. And for the past few days, this idea has filled me with a fear of the most humiliating kind. The fear lest, after all my beliefs and protestations, I should eventually find myself loving Lucas in the helpless, common way of women. The dread that the moment may arrive some day when, should it be required of me, I shan't feel myself able to give him up easily. I... I... Uh, Lucas, <laughs> Mrs Thorpe starts for home tomorrow. She has called to say goodbye. It is very kind. Uh, is your brother quite well? Thanks. Quite. I believe I have added to his experience of the obscure corners of Venice during the past week. <laughs> I, I don't... Uh... Why? By so frequently putting him to the inconvenience of avoiding me. Oh, Mr. Cleave, we... I... I... Please tell your brother that I asked after him. I... I can't. He... he doesn't know either. I've... Ah, really? Goodbye. Brute. Oh, I suppose Mr. Cleave has made me look precisely as I feel. How? Like people deserve to feel who do godly, mean things. Mr. Cleave has just gone out. Vous savez, n'est-ce pas? But Madame is now engaged. Oh, I am going. Wait. <clears throat> Honour. On the left-hand side of the campo. Yes. <clears throat> In uh, one of the doorways between Fiorentini's and the little lamp shop, uh, the... Uh... <clears throat> Pardon. Dépêchez-vous. Fortune flatters herself she is engaged in some horrid intrigue. You guess whom I am expecting. The Duke. I've written to him asking him to call upon me this afternoon while Lucas is at Florian's. He is to kick his heels about the campo till I let him know I am alone. Will he obey you? A week ago he was curious to see the sort of animal I am. If he holds off now, I'll hit upon some other plan. I will come to close quarters with him, if only for five minutes. You still refuse my address? You bat. Didn't you see me make a note of it? You... Here, yeah, in my heart. 
Oh. Goodbye. Gertrude? Yes? Remember, in my thoughts, I pace that rectory with you. Ah, Nella, portez ce carton dans ma chambre. Signora, if you were to wear this magnificent dress, oh, quanto sarebbe più bella. Go on, Nella. Yes, Fortune. Duke of St. Olfer. Mrs. Ebsmith? Mr. Cleave would have opposed this rather out-of-the-way proceeding of mine. He doesn't know I have asked you to call on me today. So I conclude. It gives our meeting a pleasant air of adventure. I shall tell him directly he returns. And destroy a cherished secret. Uh, um, may I? You are an invalid. Pray don't stand. Too kind. Your grace is a man who takes life lightly. It will relieve you to hear that I wish to keep sentiment out of any business we have together. I believe I haven't the reputation of being a sentimental man. You send for me, Mrs. Ebsmith. To tell you, I have come to regard the suggestion you were good enough to make a week ago. Suggestion? Shakespeare. The musical glasses, you know. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've come to think it a reasonable one. At that moment, I considered it a gross impertinence. Written requests are so dependent on a sympathetic reader. That meeting might have saved you time and trouble. I begrudge neither. It might perhaps have shown your grace that your view of life is too narrow, that your method of dealing with its problems wants variety, that, in point of fact, your employment upon your present mission is distinctly inappropriate. Our meeting today may serve the same purpose. My view of life? That all men and women may safely be judged by the standards of the casino and the dancing garden. I have found those standards not altogether untrustworthy. My method? To scoff, to sneer, to ridicule. Oh. And how much is there, my dear Mrs. Ebsmith, belonging to humanity that survives being laughed at? More than you credit, Duke. For example, I... I think it possible you may not succeed in grinning away the compact between Mr. Cleave and myself. Compact? Between serious man and woman. Serious woman? At least you must see that. Serious woman. You can't fail to realise, even from this slight personal knowledge of me, that you are not dealing, just now, with some poor, feeble ballet girl. But how well you put it. And how frank of you to furnish, as it were, a plan of the fortifications to the... the... Why do you stick at enemy? It's not the word. Opponent. For the moment, perhaps. Opponent. I'm never an enemy, I hope, where your sex is concerned. No, I am aware that you are not over-nice in the bestowal of your patronage where my sex is concerned. You regard my appearance in an affair of morals as a quaint one? Your grace is beginning to know me. 
Dear lady, you take pride, I hear, in belonging to the people. You would delight me amazingly by giving me an inkling of the popular notion of my career. Excuse me. Please. It would be instructive, perhaps chastening. I entreat. No. You are letting sentiment intrude itself. I challenge you. At Eton, you were curiously precocious. The headmaster, referring to your aptitude with books, prophesied a brilliant future for you. Your tutor, alarmed by your attachment to a certain cottage at Ascot, which was mine as a host, thanked his stars to be rid of you. At Oxford, you closed all books, except, of course, betting books. I detected the tendency of the age. Scholarship for the masses. I considered it my turn to be merely intuitively intelligent. You left Oxford a gambler and a spendthrift. A year or two in town established you as an amiable, undisguised debauchee. The rest is modern history. Complete your sketch. Don't stop at the rude outline. Your affairs falling into disorder, you promptly married a wealthy woman, the poor rich lady who has for some years honoured you by being your duchess at a distance. This burlesque of a marriage helped to reassure your friends and actually obtained for you an ornamental appointment, for which an overtaxed nation provides a handsome stipend. But, to sum up, you must always remain an irritating source of uneasiness to your own order, as, luckily, you will always be a sharp-edged weapon in the hands of mine. Yours? Ah, to that small, unruly section to which I understand you particularly attach yourself. To the... The sufferers. The toilers. That great crowd of old and young... Old and young, stamped by excessive labour and privation, all of one pattern. Whose backs bend under burdens, whose bones ache and grow awry, whose skins, in youth and in age, are wrinkled and yellow. Those from whom a fair share of the earth's space and of the light of day is withheld. The half-starved, who are bidden to stand with their feet in the kennel to watch gay processions in which you and your kind are born high. Those who would strip the robes from a dummy aristocracy and cast the broken dolls into the limbo of a nation's discarded toys. Those who, mark me, are already upon the highway, marching, marching, whose time is coming as surely as yours is going. Oh, bravo! Bravo! No, really a flash of the old fire. Admirable. Your present affair, Ducur, does not wholly absorb you then, Mrs. Ebbsmith. Even now the murmurings of love have not entirely superseded the thunderous denunciations of... Uh, mm, oh, you, you once bore a nickname, my dear. So you've heard that, have you? Oh, yes. Mad, Agnes? Mm-hmm. We appear to have studied each other's history pretty closely. Dear lady, this is not the first time the same roof 
has covered us. No. Five years ago, on a broiling night in July, I joined a party of men who made an excursion from a clubhouse in St. James's Street to the unsavoury district of St. Luke's. Oh, yes. A depressing building. The Iron Hall, Barker Street. Uh, um, uh, Carter Street. Precisely. We took our places amongst a handful of frowsy folks who cracked nuts and blasphemed. On the platform stood a gaunt, white-faced young lady, resolutely engaged in making up by extravagance of gesture for the deficiencies of an exhausted voice. There, said one of my companions, that is the notorious Mrs. Ebbsmith. Upon which a person near us, whom I judged from his air of leaden laziness to be a British working man, blurted out, Notorious Mrs. Ebbsmith, Mad Agnes, that's the name her sanguinary friends give her, Mad Agnes. And at that moment, the eye of the panting oratress caught mine for an instant, and you and I first met. Mad Agnes. <laughs> we have both been criticised in our time pretty sharply, eh, Duke? Yes. Let that reflection make you more charitable to a poor peer. Entrez! Ah, thank you, Fortune. You drink tea, fellow sufferer? Mm-hmm. Uh, no milk, dear lady. And may I be allowed saccharin? <laughs> Tell me now, really, why do the Cleves send a rip like you to do their serious work? <laughs> <laughs> rip! <laughs> Poor, solemn family. Oh, set a thief to catch a thief, you know. That, I presume, is their motive. What do you mean? Mm. Set a thief to catch a thief. And by deduction, set one sensualist, who, after all, doesn't take the trouble to deceive himself, to rescue another who does. If I understand you, that is an insinuation against Mr. Cleave. Insinuation? Make yourself clearer. You have accused me, Mrs. Ebbsmith, of narrowness of outlook. In the present instance, dear lady, it is your judgment which is at fault. Mine? It is not I who fall into the error of confounding you with the designing dancers of commerce. It is, strangely enough, you who have failed in your estimate of Mr. Lucas Cleave. What is my estimate? I pay you the compliment of believing that you have looked upon my nephew as a talented young gentleman whose future was seriously threatened by domestic disorder, a young man of a certain courage and independence, with a share of the brain and spirit of those terrible human pests called reformers. The one gentleman, in fact, 
most likely to aid you in advancing your vivacious social and political tenets. You have such thoughts in your mind? I can't deny it. Ah, but what is the real, the actual Lucas Cleave? Well, what is the real Lucas Cleave? Poor dear fellow. I'll tell you, the real Lucas Cleave, an egoist. An egoist? Yes. Possessing ambition without patience. Self-esteem without self-confidence. Well? Afflicted with a desperate craving for the opium-like drug, adulation. Persistently seeking the society of those whose white, pink-tipped fingers fill the pernicious pipe most deftly and delicately, eh? I didn't... Pray, go on. Ha. I remember they looked to his marriage to check his dangerous fancy for the flutter of lace, the purr of pretty women. And now, here he is, loose again. Oh! In short, in intellect still nothing but a callow boy, in body nervous, bloodless, hysterical, in morals, an epicure. Have done! Epicure offends you. A vain woman would find consolation in the word. Enough! The real Lucas Cleave. No. Untrue. Lucas! The Duke of St. Olfert's calls in answer to a letter I wrote to him yesterday. I wanted to make his acquaintance. I will leave you to talk. By a lucky accident, the tables were crowded at Florian's. I might have missed the chance of welcoming you. In God's name, Duke, why must you come here? In God's name? You bring the orthodoxy into this queer firm, then, Lucas? I was sent a peremptory summons. You need not have obeyed it. I looked about for you just now. I wanted to see you. How fortunate. To tell you that this persecution must come to an end. It has made me desperately wretched for a whole week. Persecution? Temptation. Dear Lucas... The process of inducing a man to return to his wife isn't generally described as temptation. I won't hear another word of that proposal. I say my people are offering me, through you, a deliberate temptation to be a traitor. To which of these two women, my wife, or to her, am I really bound now? It may be regrettable, scandalous, but the common rules of right and wrong have ceased to apply here. Finally, Duke, and this is my message, I intend to keep faith with the woman who sat by my bedside in Rome, the woman to whom I shouted my miserable story in my delirium, the woman whose calm, resolute voice healed me, hardened me, renewed in me the desire to live. Ah, oh, these modern nurses in their greys or browns and snowy bibs. They have much to answer for, dear Lucas. 
no, no. Why will you persist, all of you, in regarding this as a mere morbid infatuation bred in the fumes of pastels? It isn't so. Laugh. Laugh if you care to, but this is a meeting of affinities, of the solitary man and the truly sympathetic woman. And, oh, oh, these sympathetic women. No. Oh, the unsympathetic women. There you have the cause of half the world's misery. The unsympathetic women. You should have loved one of them. I dare say I've done that in my time. How your heart leaps with gratitude for your good fortune. How compassionately you regard your unblessed fellow men. What may you not accomplish with such a mate beside you? How high will be your aims? How paltry every obstacle that bars your way to them? How sweet is to be the labour? How divine the rest? Then you marry her. Marry her, and in six months, if you've pluck enough to do it, lag behind your shooting party and blow your brains out by accident at the edge of a turnip field. You have found out by that time all that there is to look for, the daily diminishing interest in your doings, the poorly assumed attention as you attempt to talk over some plan for the future, then the yawn, and by degrees, the covert sneer, the little sarcasm, and finally, the frank, open stare of boredom. Ah, Duke. When you all carry out your repressive legislation against women of evil lives, don't fail to include in your schedule the unsympathetic wives. They are the women whose victims show the sorriest scars. They are the really bad women of the world. All the others are snow white in comparison. Yes, yes, you've got a good deal of this in that capital essay you quoted from this morning. Uh, dear fellow... I admit your home discomforts, but to jump out of the frying pan into this confounded, oh, what does she call it, compact? Compact? A vague reference, as I understand, to your joint crusade against the blessed institution of marriage. <laughs> oh, oh, that idea. What, well, what has she been saying to you? Incidentally, she pitched into me, dear Lucas. She attacked my moral character. You must have been telling tales. Oh, I, I hope not. Uh, of course, we, we... Yes, yes, a little family gossip to pass the time while she's been dressing her hair. Or, uh, By the by, she doesn't appear to spend much time in dressing her hair. Really? Then she denounced the gilded aristocracy generally. Our day is over. We're broken wooden dolls and are going to be chucked. The old tune. But I enjoyed the novelty of being so near the instrument. I assure you, dear fellow, I was within three feet of her when she deliberately Trafalgar squared me. <laughs> You're the red rag duke. This spirit of revolt in her, it's ludicrously extravagant, but it, it will die out in time. When she has become used to being happy and cared for. Yes, cared for. Die out. Bread in the bone, dear Lucas. On some topics, she's a mere echo of her father, if you mean that. The father? One of those public park vermin, then? Dead years ago. I once heard her bellowing in a dirty little shed in St. Luke's, I told you. 
Yes, you've told me. I sat there again, it seemed, this afternoon. The orator not quite so lean, perhaps. A little less witch-like, but... She was actually in want of food in those days, poor girl. I mean to remind myself of that constantly. Poor girl. Girl? Let me see. You're considerably her junior? Uh, no, no. A, a few months, perhaps. Oh, come. Well, years, two or three. The voice remains rather raucous. By God, the voice is sweet. Well, considering the wear and tear. Really, my dear fellow, I do believe this. I do believe that if you gowned her respectably... Yes, 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 I say so. I tell her that. Do you? Well, that's odd now. What a topic, poor Agnes's dress. Your taste used to be rather aesthetic. Even your own wife is one of the smartest women in London. Ha, well, I must contrive to smother these aesthetic tastes of mine. It's a pity that other people will retain their sense of the incongruous. Other people? The public. The public? Come, you know well enough that unostentatious immodesty is no part of your partner's programme. Of course, you will find yourself by and by in a sort of perpetual parade with your crack-brained visionary. You shall not speak of her so. You shall not. Each of you bearing a pole at the soiled banner of free union. Free union for the people. Ho, my dear Lucas. Good heavens, Duke, do you imagine, now that I am in sound health and mind again, that I don't see the hideous absurdity of these views of hers? Then why the deuce don't you listen a little more patiently to my views? No, no, I tell you, I intend to keep faith with her, as far as I am able. She's so earnest, so pitiably earnest. If I broke faith with her entirely, it would be too damnably cowardly. Cowardly? Besides, we shall do well together after all, I believe, she and I. In the end, we shall make concessions to each other and settle down somewhere abroad, peacefully. Ha! Huh. And they called you a coming man at one time, didn't they? Oh, I, I shall make as fine a career with my pen as that other career would have been. At any rate, I ask you to leave me to it all. To leave me. I beg your pardon, sir. Well? It is past the time for you to dress for dinner. I'll come. When do we next meet, dear fellow? No, no. Please. Not again. Hmm. Si, signore. Ecco il signore. Oh, scusi, signore. When you see her, you will see how sweet she looks. Am I keeping you waiting, Lucas? Beautiful. You're not dressed, Lucas, dear. Uh, what, what time is it? I fear my gossiping has delayed him. Uh, you, you dine out? Such a magnificent gown. At the Grunwald. Why don't you join us? Persuade him, Lucas. Um, impossible. Some friends of mine may arrive tonight. Uh, excuse me. I am more than sorry. Really? You are sure you are not shy of being seen with a 
notorious woman. My dear Mrs. Ebsmith. No, I forget. That would be unlike you. Mad people scare you, perhaps. <laughs> oh, don't be too rough. Come, Duke. Confess. Isn't there more sanity in me than you suspected? Much more. I think you're very clever. Ah, uh, Lucas, um, just off, dear fellow. You, Mrs. Ebsmith, you are charming. Um, au revoir. Au revoir. You had better take me to Felice's before we dine and buy me some gloves. Agnes, dear. Are you satisfied? You have delighted me. How sweet you look. <laughs> you shall have twenty new gowns now. You shall see the women envying you, the men envying me. <laughs> Fifty new gowns. You will wear them. Yes. Why, what has brought about this change in you? What? What? I know. You know? Exactly how you regard me. I, I don't understand you. Listen, long ago in Florence, I began to suspect that we had made a mistake, Lucas. Even there, I began to suspect that your nature was not one to allow you to go through life sternly, severely, looking upon me more and more each day as a fellow worker and less and less as a woman. I suspected this, or proved it, but still made myself believe that this companionship of ours would gradually become, in a sense, colder, more temperate, more impassive. Never. Oh, a few minutes ago, this man, who means to part us if he can, drew your character, disposition in a dozen words. You believe him? You credit what he says of me? I declared it to be untrue. Oh, but, but, but the picture he paints of you is not wholly a false one. Oh, shh, Lucas, hark. Attend to me. I resign myself to it all. Dear, I must resign myself to it. Resign yourself? Has life with me become so distasteful? Has it? Think. Why, when I realised the actual terms of our companionship, why didn't I go on my own way stoically? Why don't I go at this very moment? You really love me, do you mean? As simple, tender women are content to love? Oh, my dear girl, my dear cold, warm-hearted girl. <laughs> you couldn't bear to see me packed up in one of the Duke's travelling boxes and borne back to London, eh? No. No fear of that, my, my sweetheart. Quick, dress. Take me out. You are shivering. Get your thickest wrap. That heavy brown cloak of mine? Yes. It's an old friend, but dreadfully shabby. You will be ashamed of me again. Ashamed? I'll write to Bardini about a new one tomorrow. I won't oppose you. 
I won't repel you anymore. Repel me? I only urged you to reveal yourself as what you are. A beautiful woman. Oh. Am I? That. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'm glad. <laughs> the fortune. Hmm. Are you often guilty of this sort of thing? <laughs> Never fainted before in my life. I don't mean to do so again. Should you alter your mind about that, do select a suitable spot on the next occasion. What was it your head came against? A wooden chest, Mr Cleave thinks. With beautiful, rusty iron clamps. <laughs> the price of vanity. Vanity? Lucas was to take me out to dinner. While I was waiting for him to dress, I must needs stand and survey my full length in a mirror. A very excusable proceeding. Suddenly the room sank and left me, so the feeling was in the air. Well, most women can manage to look in their pier glasses without swooning. <laughs> hey, Mrs. Thorpe? How should I know, Doctor? How goes the time? Half past eight. I'll leave this prescription at Montevani's myself. I can get it made up tonight. Let me look. Now, now. <laughs> oh, after all, what humbugs doctors are. You've never heard me deny it. But I'll swallow it for the dignity of my old profession. Don't smoke too many of those things. They never harm me. It's a survival of the time in my life when the cupboard was always empty. Only it had to be stronger tobacco in those days, I can tell you. Well? She is to have a cup of good bouillon. Uh, Mrs Thorpe is going to look after that and anything else she fancies. She's all right. The excitement of putting on that pretty frock. I'll look in tomorrow. Oh, um, just a word with you, nurse. Gertrude, there's many a true word, etc. Excitement? Yes. And that smart gown's connected with it, too. It is extraordinary to see her like this. Not the same woman? No. Nor is he quite the same man. How long can you remain with her? Till eleven. If you will let my brother know where I am. What? Doesn't he know? I simply sent word. About an hour ago, that I shouldn't be back to dinner. Very well. Look here, I'll get you to tell him the truth. The truth? So? Uh... I called here this afternoon, unknown to Amos, to bid her goodbye. Then I potted about rather miserably, spending money, coming out of Naya's, the photographer's. I tumbled over Mr. Cleave who had been looking for you, and he begged me to come round here again after I had done my shopping. I understand. Doctor, have you ever seen Amos look dreadfully stern and knit about the brows, like a bishop who's put out? No. Then you will. Huh! 
Well, this is a pretty task. Good day. I'm going down into the kitchen to see what these people can do in the way of strong soup. You are exceedingly good to us, Mrs Thorpe. I can't tell you how ashamed I am of my bearishness this afternoon. Hush, please. Are you looking at my shawl? Lucas brought it in with him as a reward for my coming out of that stupid faint. I, I have always refused to be spoiled in this way, but now, now... Pretty work upon it, is there not, Mrs Thorpe? Charming. Thank you. Oh, my dear girl. I'm quite myself again, Lucas, dear. Watch me. Look. No trembling? Not a flutter. My hand is absolutely steady. <laughs> no, it is shaking. Yes, when you... When you kissed it. Oh, Lucas. Agnes, dear. Let me... Let me... Uh, I've never seen you. No, I, I've never been a crying woman. But uh, some great change has befallen me, I believe. What is it? That swoon it wasn't mere faintness. Giddiness... It was this change coming over me. You are not unhappy. No, I... I don't think I am. Isn't that strange? Oh, my dearest, I'm happy to hear you say that, for you've made me very happy. Because I... Because you love me. Naturally, that's one great reason. I have always loved you. But never so utterly. So absorbingly, as you confess you do now. Do you fully realise what your confession does? It strikes off the shackles from me, from us, sets us free. Free? Free from the burden of that crazy plan of ours, of trumpeting our relations to the world. Forgive me, crazy is the only word for it. Thank heaven we've at last admitted to each other that we're ordinary man and woman. Of course, I was ill, off my head. I didn't know what I was entering upon, and you, dear, living a pleasureless life, letting your thoughts dwell constantly on old troubles. That is how cranks are made. Now that I'm strong again, body and mind, I can protect you, keep you right. Ha <laughs> ha, what were we to pose as? Examples of independent thought and action? <laughs> Oh, my darling, we'll be independent in thought and action still, but we won't make examples of ourselves, eh? Do you mean that all idea of our writing together, working together, defending our position and the position of such as ourselves before the world is to be abandoned? Why, of course. I, I didn't mean quite that. Come, come. We'll furl what my uncle calls the banner of free union, finally. For the future, mere man and woman. The future. I've settled everything already. The work shall fall wholly on my shoulders. Oh, my poor girl, you shall enjoy a little rest and pleasure. Rest and pleasure? 
We'll remain abroad. Uh, one can live unobserved abroad without actually hiding. Uh, we'll find an ideal retreat. No more English tourists prying around us. Uh, and there, in some beautiful spot, alone except for your company, I'll work. I'll work. My new career. I'll write under a nom de plume. My books, Agnes, shall never ride to popularity on the back of a scandal. Our life. The mornings I must spend by myself, of course, shut up in my room. In the afternoon, we will walk together. After dinner, you shall hear what I've written in the morning, and then a few turns round our pretty garden, a glance at the stars with my arms round your waist, while you whisper to me words of tenderness, words of... Ah, keep your shawl over your shoulders, some mandolinisti in a gondola. Oh, how pretty, Agnes. Now, don't those mere sounds in such surroundings give you a, a sensation of hatred for revolt and turmoil? Don't they conjure up alluringly pictures of peace and pleasure, of golden days and starlit nights, pictures of beauty and love? My marriage... The early days of my marriage all over again. Eh? Tell me that those sounds thrill you. Lucas. Yes? For the first few months of my marriage... Why, how young you seem to have become. You look quite boyish. <laughs> I believe that this return of our senses will make us both young again. Both? You know I'm older than you. Yes, I shall feel that now. Well, so it has come to this. I declare that you have colour in your cheeks already. The return of my senses. My dear Agnes, we've both been to the verge of madness, you and I. Driven there by our troubles. Let us agree, in so many words, that we have completely recovered. Shall we? Perhaps mine is a more obstinate case. My enemies called me mad years ago. Ah, ah, but the future, the future. No more thoughts of reforming unequal laws from public platforms. No more shrieking in obscure magazines. No more beating of bare knuckles against stone walls. Come, say it. Go on. I'll never be mad again. Never. By heavens. You don't say it. I... I will never be mad again. Ha! Ha ha ha! My dear girl! Lucas! Yes? Isn't this madness? I don't think so. Oh. oh... Oh... I believe to be a woman is to be mad. No. To be a woman trying not to be a woman. That is to be mad. Oh, now, you promised me to run out to the Capello Nero to get a little food. Oh, I'd rather. Dearest, you need it. Well, Fortune shall fetch my hat and coat. Fortune? Are you going to take all my work from me? Agnes! A thousand thoughts have... 
rushed through my brain this last hour or two. I've been thinking. My wife. Yes? My wife, she, uh, she will soon get tired of her present position. If by and by there should be a divorce, there would be nothing to prevent our marrying. Our marrying? It might be to my advantage to settle again in London someday. After all, scandals quickly lose their keen edge. Uh, what would you say? Marriage? Ah, remember we're rational beings for the future. Uh, however, we needn't talk about it now. No. Still, I assume you wouldn't oppose it. You would marry me if I wished it. Yes. That's a sensible girl. Oh, by Jove, I am hungry. My old life. My old life. Coming all over again. Yes, Fortune? The Duke of St. Olfert, he said he would like to speak a minute alone. Priez, Monsieur le Duc d'Entrey. Ah, um, quite alone? For the moment. My excuse to Mrs. Ebbsmith for not dining at the Grunewald, it was a perfectly legitimate one, dear Lucas. I really was expecting visitors. Yes? Oh, <clears throat> I'm not so well tonight. Oh, damn these people for troubling me. Damn them for keeping me hopping about. Damn them for every shoot I feel in my leg. <sighs> Visitors from England. They've arrived. But what? Oh, I shall die of gout some day, Lucas. Um, your wife is here. Sybil. She's come through with your brother. Samford's a worse prig than ever, and I'm in shocking pain. This, this is your doing? Yes. Damn you, don't keep me standing. Ah, ah, my dear Mrs. Ebbsmith, how can you have the heart to deceive an invalid? A poor wretch who begs you to allow him to sit down for a moment? Deceive? My friends arrive. I dine scrappily with them and hurry to the Grunwald, thinking to catch you over your zabayone. Uh, dear lady, you haven't been near the Grunwald. Your women faint sometimes, don't they? My... Oh, what do you mean? The women in your class of life. Uh, faint? Oh, well, yes, when there's occasion for it. I'm hopelessly low-born. I fainted involuntarily. Oh, my dear. Well, pray forgive me. You've recovered? Indisposition agrees with you, evidently. Your colouring tonight is charming. <coughs> you are <coughs> delightful to look at. Gertrude. Lucas, who's that gal? An hotel acquaintance we made in Florence, uh, Mrs. Thorpe. Ah, where's the husband? A, a widow. Well, you might, um... Mrs. Thorpe, uh, the Duke of St. Olfords wishes to be introduced to you. Delighted to meet you. I beg to be allowed to help you. Um, shall I put your tray here? Thank you. Mm. We think it's so gracious of you to look after our poor friend here, who's not quite herself today. 
Now come along, dear Agnes. You are here with your mother, I understand? My brother. Brother. Now do tell me whether you find your, your little hotel comfortable. We don't stay at one. Apartments? Yes. Ah. Uh, do you know, dear Mrs Thorpe, I've always had the very strongest desire to live in lodgings in Venice. You should gratify it. Our quarters are rather humble. We are in the Campo San Bartolomeo. Oh, but how delightful. Why not come and see our rooms? My dear young lady, um, Campo San Bartolomeo? Five, four, naught, two. Five, four, naught, two. Um, tomorrow afternoon, four o'clock? Yes, that would give the people ample time to tidy and clear up after us. Uh, after you? After our departure. My brother and I leave early tomorrow morning. A thousand thanks. May I impose myself so far upon you as to ask you to tell your landlord to expect me? Uh, we're allowing this soup to get cold. Uh, dear Lucas, you have uh, something to say to me. Come into my room. <laughs> You're a splendid woman. <laughs> That's rather a bad man, I think. Now, dear, so you have succeeded in coming to close quarters, as you expressed it with him? Yes. His second visit here today, I gather. Yes. His attitude towards you, his presence here under any circumstances, it's all rather queer. His code of behaviour is peculiarly his own. However, you are easier in your mind. I shall defeat him. Defeat him? You will succeed in holding Mr Cleave, you mean? Oh, if you put it in that way. Wine? Yes, thank you. Agnes? Yes? You are dressed very beautifully. Do you think so? Don't you know it? Who made you that gown? Bardini. I shouldn't have credited the little woman with such excellent ideas. Oh, Lucas gave her the idea when he... When he ordered it. I noticed the box this afternoon when I called. Mr Cleave wishes me to appear more like... An ordinary, smart woman. Well, you ought to find no difficulty in managing that. You can make yourself very charming, it appears. I have something to propose. Come home with me tomorrow. Home? Catherick. The very spot for a woman who wants to shut out things. Miles and miles of wild moorland. Oh, and for open-air music. You can even hear the sound of the church organ quite a long distance off. Will you come? Listen to that. The mandolinisti. You talk of the sound of your church organ and I hear his music. His music? The music he is fond of. The music that gives him the thoughts that please him, soothe him. And that's my idea, essentially. <clears throat> Mrs Thorpe, would you excuse us, please? Of course.
What is the matter? My wife is revealing quite a novel phase of character. Your wife? The submissive mood. It's right that you should be told, Agnes. She is here, at the Danielli, with my brother Sandford. Yes, positively. It appears that she has lent herself to a scheme of Sandford's and of... Uh, and uh, Of Sandford's. A plan of reconciliation. Tell Sybil that the submissive mood comes too late, by a year or so. The friends you were expecting, Duke? Yes. <laughs> Agnes, dear, you and I leave here early tomorrow. Very well, Lucas. Duke, uh, will you be the bearer of a note from me to Sandford? Certainly. I'll write it at once. You won't see Sandford then, dear Lucas, for a moment or two? No, no, pray excuse me. Upon my soul, I think you've routed us. Yes. <laughs> oh, Sir Sanford and Mrs Cleave will be so angry. Oh, such a devil of a journey for nothing. <laughs> <coughs> this was to be your grand coup. I admit it. I have been keeping this in reserve. I see. A further term of cat-and-dog life for Lucas and his lady. But it would have served to dispose of me, you fondly imagined. I see. I knew your hold on him was weakening. You knew it too. He was beginning to find out that a dowdy demagogue is not the cheeriest person to live with. I repeat, you're a deuced clever woman, my dear. And a handsome one into the bargain. <laughs> Tell me. When did you make up your mind to transform yourself? Suddenly, after our interview this afternoon. After what you said. Oh. An impulse. Impulse doesn't account for the possession of those gorgeous trappings. These rags. A surprise gift from Lucas today. Really, my dear. I believe I have helped to bring about my own defeat. <laughs> Oh, how disgusted the Cleve family will be. <laughs> uh, oh, come. Why don't you smile? Laugh. You can afford to do so. Show your pretty white teeth. Laugh. <laughs> That's better. By Jove, which is you? The shabby, shapeless rebel who entertained me this afternoon, or... This. This. My sex has found me out. <laughs> Damn it. For your sake, I almost wish Lucas was a different sort of fellow. Nothing matters now. Not even that. He's mine. He would have died but for me. I gave him life. He is my child, my husband, my lover, my bread, my daylight, all, everything mine. Good luck, my girl. Thanks. I'm rather sorry for you. This sort of triumph is short-lived, you know. I know. But I shall fight for every moment that prolongs it. This is my hour. Your hour? There's only one hour in a woman's life. One? <laughs> one supreme hour. Her poor life is like the arch of a crescent. 
So many years lead up to that hour, so many weary years decline from it. No matter what she may strive for, there is a moment when circumstance taps her on the shoulder and says, Woman, this hour is the best that earth has to spare you. It may come to her in calm or in temper, lighted by a steady radiance or by the glitter of evil stars. But however it comes, be it good or evil, it is her hour. Let her dwell upon every second of it. And this little victory of yours, the possession of this man, you think this is the best that earth can spare you? Dear me, how amusing you women are. And in your dowdy days, you had ambitions? You're right. Once, long ago, I hoped that my hour would be very different from this. Ambitions. I have seen myself standing, humbly clad, looking down upon a dense, swaying crowd, a scarlet flag for my background. I have seen the responsive look upon thousands of pale, eager, hungry faces, and I've heard the great hoarse shout of welcome as I have seized my flag and hurried down amongst the people to be given a place among their leaders. I, with the leaders. Yes, that is what I once hoped would be my hour. But this is my hour. Well, my dear... When it's over, you'll have the satisfaction of counting the departing footsteps of a ruined man. Ruined? Yes. There's great compensation in that for women. Why do you suggest he'll be ruined through me? At any rate, he'd ended his old career before we met. Uh, pardon me. It's not now too late for him to resume that career. The threads are not quite broken yet. Oh, the scandal in London would be dispelled by this sham reconciliation with his wife. Sham? Why, of course. All we desired to arrange was that for the future, their household should be conducted strictly a la mode. Mr. Cleave in one quarter of the house, Mrs. Cleave in another. Oh, yes. A proper aspect to the world, combined with freedom on both sides. It's a more a decorous system than the aggressive free union you once advocated. And it's much in vogue at my end of town. Your plan was a little more subtle than I gave you credit for. This was to be your method of getting rid of me. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Don't you understand? With regard to yourself, we could have arrived at a compromise. It would have made us quite happy to see you placed upon a, upon a somewhat different footing. What kind of footing? The suburban villa, the little garden, a couple of discreet servants. Everything a la mode. Well, you've had Mr Cleve's answer to that. Yes. Which finally disposes of the whole matter. Oh, completely. Unless you... Unless I... What did Lucas say to you when you... He said he knew you'd never make that sacrifice for him, so he declined to pain you by asking you to do it. That's a lie. Oh, keep your temper, my dear. His love may not last, but at this moment he loves me better than that. He wouldn't make a mere light thing of me. Wouldn't he? You try him. What? You put him to the test. Oh. Uh, no. Uh, no, uh, don't. 
Why? Well, I like you. Damn him. You deserve to live your hour. Here, uh, the letter. Thanks. Oh, Lucas. Yes? The Duke has been... Uh, has been telling me... What, dear? The sort of arrangement proposed for your going back to London. Oh, my brother's brilliant idea. Acquiesced in by your wife. Certainly, as I anticipated. She has become intensely dissatisfied with her position. And it would be quite possible, it seems, for you to resume your old career. Just barely possible. Well, for the moment, quite possible. Quite possible. I haven't formally made a sign to my political friends yet. It's a task one leaves to the last. I shall do so now, at once. My people have been busying themselves, it appears, in reporting that I shall return to London directly my health is fully re-established. In the hope... Oh. Yes. Hoping they'd be able to separate us before it was too late. Which hope they've now relinquished? Apparently. They're prepared to accept a, a compromise, I hear? <laughs> yes. A compromise in my favour. They suggest... Uh, yes, yes, I know. After all, your old career was a success. You made your mark, as you were saying the other day. You did make your mark. You were generally spoken of, accepted as the coming man. That doesn't matter. And now you are giving it up. Giving it all up. But, but you believe I shall succeed equally well in this new career of mine? There's the risk. You must remember. Obviously there's the risk. Why do you say all this to me now? Because now is the opportunity to go back. Opportunity? An excellent one. You're so strong and well now. Thanks to you. Well, I did nurse you carefully, didn't I? But I, I don't understand you. You're, you're surely not proposing to break with me. No, I, I was only thinking that you... You might see something in this suggestion of a compromise. Well, uh, but you... Lucas, don't, don't make me paramount. I do make you paramount, I do. My dear girl, under any circumstances, you would still be everything to me. Always. Uh, there would have to be this pretense of an establishment of mine. That would have to be faced, the whited sepulchre, the mockery of dinners and receptions and so on. But it would be to you I should fly for sympathy, encouragement, rest. Even if you were ill again? Even then. If it were practicable, if it could be, if it... Well? Yes, dear? What do you say, then, to asking the Duke to give you back that letter to your brother? It wouldn't settle matters, simply destroying that letter. Sanford begs me to go round to the Danielli tonight, to... To see him, and her. At what time? 
Was any time specified? Half past nine. I haven't my watch on. 9.25. You can almost manage it, if you'd like to go. Oh, let them wait a few minutes for me. That won't hurt them. Let me see. I did fetch your hat and coat. How long will you be? Not more than half an hour. An hour at the outside. Keep this neckerchief so. Uh, if, if I, uh, if we... The Duke is waiting. I'm going back to the hotel with you. Oh, are you? Lucas, is my sister still here? I should like her to know that I'm waiting for her. I will get her. Pray excuse us. You've come to fetch me, Amos? Yes. Uh, Mrs. Epsmith, I'm sorry to learn from Dr. Kirk that you've been ill. I hope you're better. Thank you. I'm quite well. Are you ready, Gertrude? No, dear. Not yet. I want you to help me. In what way? I want you to join me in persuading my friend, Mrs. Epsmith, to come to Ketherick with me. Oh, my dear sister, Please, I... Please, stop a moment. Mr. Winterfield, your sister doesn't in the least understand how matters are with me. Gertrude, I am returning to England, but with Mr. Cleave. Oh, you'd hear of it eventually. He is reconciled to his wife. Oh, then surely you... No, the reconciliation goes no further than mere outward appearances. He relies upon me as much as ever. He, he can't spare me. Are you satisfied? I suspected something of the kind. Pull yourself out of the mud. I have no will to, no desire to. You mad thing. You're only breaking in upon my hour. Your hour? I ask you to go, so go. My dear Gertrude, you see what our position is here. If Mrs. Epsmith asks for our help, it is our duty to give it. It is especially my duty, Amos. And I should have thought it especially mine. However, Mrs. Epsmith appears to firmly decline our help. And at this point, I confess, I would rather you left it. You, at least. You would rather I left it. I, the virtuous, unsoiled woman. Yes, I am a virtuous woman, Amos, and it strikes you as odd, I suppose, my insisting upon friendship with her. But look here, both of you. I'll tell you a secret. You never knew it, Amos, my dear. I never allowed anyone to suspect it. Never knew what? The, the sort of married life mine was. It didn't last long, but it was dreadful, almost intolerable. Gertrude? After the first few weeks of it, my husband treated me just as cruelly, I do believe, as your husband treated you. There was another man, one I loved, one I couldn't help loving. I could have found release with him, perhaps happiness of a kind. I resisted, came through it. There. Dead. 
the two are dead. And here I am, a virtuous, reputable woman saved by the blessed mercy of heaven. There, you are not surprised any longer, Amos. My friend, Mrs. Ebsmith. Oh, oh, if my little boy had been spared to me, he should have grown up tender to women. He should, he should. Mrs. Ebsmith, when I came here tonight, I was angry with Gertrude. Not altogether, I hope, for being in your company. But I was certainly angry with her for visiting you without my knowledge. I think I sometimes forget that she is eight and twenty, not eighteen. Well, now I offer to delay our journey home for a few days. If you hold out the faintest hope, her companionship is likely to aid you in any way. Amos. At what she said, saved by the mercy of heaven. You felt so once. Once? You have, in years gone by, asked for help on your knees. It never came. Repeat your cry. There would be no answer. Repeat it. If miracles could happen, if help, as you term it, did come, <laughs> do you know what help would mean to me? What? It would take the last crumb from me. This man's protection? Yes. Oh, Mrs. Epsmith. Well, I've asked you both to leave me, haven't I? We'll go, Amos. I'm writing our address here in my Bible, Mrs. Epsmith. I already have it. Or you might forget it. No, I don't accept your gift. The address of two friends is upon the flyleaf. I thank both of you, but you shall never be troubled again by me. Take that away. Mr. Cleave may be back soon. It would be disagreeable to you all to meet again. This book frightens you. Simple print and paper, so you pretend to regard it, but it frightens you. I called you a mad thing just now. A week ago, I did think you half mad. A poor, ill-used creature. A visionary, a moral woman living immorally. Yet in spite of it all, a woman to be loved and pitied. But now, I'm beginning to think you're only frail. Wanton. You're right. Wanton. That's what I've become. And I'm in my right senses, as you say. I suppose I was mad once for a little time years ago. And do you know what drove me so? It was that book. I trusted in it, clung to it, and it failed me. Never once did it stop my ears to the sounds of a curse. When I was beaten, it didn't make the blows a whit lighter. It never healed my bruised flesh, my bruised spirit. Yes, 
That drove me distracted for a while, but I'm sane now. Now it is you that are mad, mad to believe. Take it. I'll not endure the sight of it. <laughs> Just take it. Agnes. Agnes. I'll come back to you in a little while, Agnes. How are you getting on, Hepzibah? There's still so much to pack before we have to go. All right, Miss Gershi. I'm putting together all the wee knickknacks to leave them with the clothes in the trunks. We leave here at a quarter to eight in the morning, not a minute later. Aye. Will there be much to pack for Mistress Cleave? Nothing at all. Besides her handbag, she has only the one box. I packed that for her at the palazzo. It won't give so much trouble to meet Mistress Cleave when we get her home. Happy, we are not going to call my friend Mrs Cleave. Nay, what will you call her? I'll tell you by and by. Remember, she must never, never be reminded of the name. Aye, I'll be most careful. Poor lady. After the way she treated that husband of hers in Florence, night and day, night and day. The world's full of unhappiness, Happy. Yeah, the world's full of husbands. I can't abide them. They're true enough for the ailing, but alas, can I keep our Joe always sick? Oh, hey, Miss Gertie, oh, do forgive you, old happy. For what? Why, your own man, so I've heard, never had much as a headache till he caught his fever and died of it. No, I never knew Captain Thorpe to complain of an ache or a pain. And he was a rare, bonny husband to thee, if tales be true. Yes, Happy. Who's this? Mr. Amos. How is she? Poor as she used to be. So still, so gentle. She's reading. Reading? Ah, Mr. Amos, it's good to see thee so gladsome. Home, Happy, home. Now, get on with your packing. Well, dear, go on. Well, I've seen them. Them? The Duke and Sir Sanford Cleave. At the hotel? I, I found them sitting together in the hall, smoking, listening to some music. Quite contented with the arrangement they believed they had brought about? Apparently so, especially the baronet, a poor, cadaverous creature. Where was Mr Cleave? Well, he had been there, had an interview with his wife, and departed. Then by this time, he has discovered that Mrs. Ebb Smith has left him. I suppose so. Well, well. The Duke and the cadaverous baronet? Oh, I told them that I considered it my duty to let them know that the position of affairs had suddenly become altered. That, in point of fact... Mrs. Epsmith had ceased to be an element in their scheme for re-establishing Mr. Cleave's household. Did they inquire as to her movements? The Duke did. Guessed we had taken her. What did they say to that? The Baronet asked me whether I was the chaplain of a home for... Oh. Root! And then? 
They suggested that I ought hardly to leave them to make the necessary explanation to their relative, Mr. Lucas Cleave. Yes. Well? I fervently hoped I should never set eyes on their relative again. Ha! But that Mrs. Ebsmith had left a letter behind her at the Palazzo Arcanati, addressed to that gentleman, which I presumed contained so full an explanation as he could desire. Oh, Amos. Yeah? You're mistaken there, dear. There was no letter. Simply four shakily written words. My hour is over. A visitor, madam. The Duke of St. Alfred's. Will you receive him? Certainly. Good evening. Pray sit down. Oh, my dear sir, if I may use such an expression in your presence, here is the devil to pay. You don't mind my pipe? I don't mind your expression. The devil to pay? This, I dare say, well-intentioned interference of yours has brought about some very unpleasant results. Mr. Cleave returns to the Palazzo Arcanati and finds that Mrs. Ebsmith has flown. That result, at least, was inevitable. Whereupon he hurries back to the Danielli and denounces us all for a set of conspirators. Your Grace doesn't complain of the injustice of that charge? No. No, I don't complain. But the brother, the wife, just when they imagined they'd bagged the truant, there's the sting. Oh, then Mr. Cleave now refuses to carry out his part of the shameful arrangement? Absolutely. Uh, come into this, dear Mrs. Thorne. Thorpe. Come into this. You understand the sort of man we have to deal with in Mr. Cleave? A man who prizes a woman when he has lost her. Precisely. Men don't relish, I suppose, being cast off by women. It's an inversion of the picturesque. The male abandoned is not a pathetic figure. At any rate, our poor Lucas is now raving fidelity to Mrs. Ebsmith. <laughs> if you please, he cannot, will not exist without her. Reputation, fame, fortune are nothing weighed against Mrs. Ebsmith and we may go to perdition so that he recovers Mrs. Ebsmith. Well, to be plain, you're not asking us to sympathise with Mrs. Cleave and her brother-in-law over their defeat? Certainly not. All I ask, Mr. Winterfield, is that you will raise no obstacle to a meeting between Mrs. Cleave and... No! Don't go. The object of such a meeting? Mrs. Cleave desires to make a direct, personal appeal to Mrs. Ebsmith. Oh? What kind of woman can this Mrs. Cleave be? A woman of character, who sets herself to accomplish a certain task. Character? Oh, hush, Gertie. And who gathers her skirts tightly around her and tiptoes gently into the mire. To put it clearly... In order to get her unfaithful husband back to London, Mrs. Cleave would deliberately employ this weak, unhappy woman as a lure. Perhaps Mrs. Cleave is an unhappy woman. 
spot for work for a wife. Wife? Nonsense. She's only married to Cleave. It is proposed that this meeting should take place when? I have brought Sir Sanford and Mrs. Cleave with me. They're just here. Yeah. And if I decline? It's known you leave for Milan at a quarter to nine in the morning. There might be some sort of foolish, inconvenient scene at the station. <laughs> Surely your grace wouldn't... Oh, oh it no, 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 no. I shall be in bed at that hour. I mean, between the women, perhaps, and Mr. Cleave. Oh, come, come, sir. Can't abduct Mrs. Ebsmith, nor can we. Nor must you gag her. Pray be reasonable. Let her speak out for herself. Here, finally. And settle the business. Come, sir. Come. Ask her, Gertrude. Cleave, where is he while this poor creature's body and soul are being played for? You have told him she is with us. No, I haven't. He must suspect it. Well, candidly, Mr. Winterfield, Mr. Cleave is just now employed in looking for Mrs. Ebb Smith elsewhere. Elsewhere? Sir Sanford recognised that in his brother's present mood, the young man's presence might be prejudicial to the success of these delicate negotiations. Yes, so some lie has been told him to keep him out of the way. Now, Mr. Winterfield... Oh, good heavens, Duke, forgive me for my roughness. You appear to be fouling your hands, all of you, with some relish. I must trouble you to address remarks of that nature to Sir Sanford Cleave. I am no longer a prime mover in the affair. I am simply standing by. But how can you stand by? Confound it, sir. If you will trouble yourself to rescue people... There is a man to be rescued here as well as a woman. A man, by the way, who is a, a sort of relative of mine. Uh, the, the woman first. Not always. You can rescue this woman in a few weeks' time. It can make no difference. Ah! Ah, you are angry. I beg your pardon. One word. I assure your grace that I truly believe this wretched woman is at a fatal crisis in her life. Her affection for this man may still induce her to sacrifice herself utterly for him. She is still in danger of falling to the lowest depth a woman can attain. Come, Duke, don't help these people, and don't stand by. Help me and my sister, for God's sake. My good Mr. Winterfield, uh, believe me or not, I positively like this woman. Ah. She attracts me, curiously. And if she wanted assistance... What, doesn't she? Money? Uh, no, no. She should have it. But as for the rest, well... Well? Well, sir, you must understand me. It is a failing of mine. I can't approach women, I never could, in the missionary spirit. Sir Sanford Cleave and Mrs. Sybil Cleave. Uh, Mrs. Thorpe, Mr. Winterfield. Good evening. Will you both take a seat? 
Gertrude, would you ask Agnes to join us? Very well. Mr Winterfield, I find myself engaged on a peculiarly distasteful task. I have no hope, Sir Sandford, that you will not have strength to discharge it. We shall object to loftiness of attitude on your part, sir. You would do well to reflect that we are seeking to restore a young man to a useful and honourable career. You are using very honourable means, Sir Sandford. I shall protest against any perversion of words, Mr Winterfield. May I introduce Mrs Ebsmith? Good evening. She is dressed as the lean witch again, Sybil. The witch of the Iron Hall at St Luke's. Is that the woman? You see only one of them. There are two there. I am Mr Lucas Cleave's brother. This is Mrs Cleave. Mrs Ebsmith, I beg that you will sit down. I don't need to be told that this is a very unwomanly proceeding on my part. I can't regard it in that light under the peculiar circumstances. I'd rather you wouldn't interrupt me, Sanford. But the peculiar circumstances, to borrow my brother-in-law's phrase, are not such as to develop sweetness and modesty, I suppose. Again, I say you wrong yourself there, Sybil. Oh, please let me wrong myself for a change. Mrs Ebsmith, when my husband left me, and I heard of his association with you, I felt sure that his vanity would soon make an openly irregular life intolerable to him. Vanity is the cause of a great deal of virtue in men. The vainest are those who like to be thought respectable. Really, I must protest. But Lady Cleave, the mother, and the rest of the family have not had the patience to wait for the fulfilment of my prophecy. And so I have been forced to undertake this journey. I demur to the expression forced, Sybil. Oh, cannot we be left alone? Surely. Uh, very well. But we shall not be far away. There's this to be said for them, poor people. Whatever is done to save my husband's prospects in life must be done now. It is no longer possible to play fast and loose with friends and supporters, or to say nothing of enemies. His future now rests upon a matter of days. Hours, almost. That is why I am sent here. Well, why I am here. What is it you are all asking me to do now? We are asking you to continue to... to exert your influence over him for a little while longer. Ah! My influence. <laughs> Mind. You wouldn't underrate your power if you had seen him, but heard him about an hour ago, after he had discovered his bereavement. He will soon forget me. Yes, if you don't forsake him. I am going to England and to Yorkshire. According to your showing, that should draw him back. <laughs> oh, I have no doubt that we shall hear of him in Yorkshire. <laughs> You'll find him dangling about your skirt in Yorkshire. And he will find that I am determined. Strong. Ultimately, he will tire, of course. But when? And what assurance have we that he returns to us when he is wearied of pursuing you? Besides, don't I tell you that we must make sure of him now? 
It's of no use his begging us in a month's time to patch up home and reputation. It must be now, and you can end our suspense. Come, hideous as it sounds, this is not much to ask. Oh, oh, don't regard me as the wife. That's an unnecessary sentiment. I pledge you my word. It's a little late in the day, too, for such considerations. So, come, help us. I will not. He has an old mother. Poor woman. And remember, you took him away. I? Practically you did, with your tender nursing and sweet compassion. Isn't it straining a point to shirk bringing him back? I did not take him from you. You you sent him to me. <laughs> yes. That tale has been dinned into your ears often enough, I can quite believe. I sent him to you. My coldness, heartlessness, oh, selfishness sent him to you. The unsympathetic wife, eh? Yes. But you didn't put yourself to the trouble of asking for my version of the story before you mingled your woes with his. You know him now. Have I been altogether to blame? Do you still think? Unsympathetic, because I've so often had to tighten my lips and stare blankly over his shoulder to stop myself crying out in weariness of his vanity and pettiness. Cruel, because occasionally patience becomes exhausted at the mere contemplation of a man so self-absorbed. Why, you married miserably, the Duke of St. Alphards tells us. Before you made yourself my husband's champion and protector, why didn't you let your experience speak a word for me? However, I didn't come here to revile you. They say that you're a strange woman. Not the sort of woman one generally finds doing such things as you have done. A woman with odd ideas. I hear, oh, I'm willing to believe it, that there's good in you. <laughs> Who tells you that? The Duke. A character. From him. Well, if there is pity in you. Help us to get my husband back to London, to his friends, to his old ambitions. I swear to you that he and I can never be more to each other than companion figures in a masquerade. The same roof may cover us, but between two wings of a house, as you may know, there often stretches a wide desert. I despise him, he hates me. <laughs> Only, I did love him once. I, I don't want to see him utterly thrown away, wasted. I don't quite want to see that. Tears. Oh, I, I'll do it. I'll go back to the palazzo at once. Oh, God. Sanford, Sanford. Well? She's going back to the plateau. You mean that she consents? I mean that she will go back to the plateau. Need we wait any longer then? These people who are befriending her, tell them. Really? It can hardly be necessary to consult them. I will have them told. Agnes? Uh, 
Many matters have been discussed with Mrs. Ebbsmith. Undoubtedly, she has, uh, for the moment, considerable influence over my brother. Uh, she has consented to exert it, to induce him to return at once to London. I think I understand you. Sanford, take me away. Mrs. Cleave, we, my brother and I, hoped to save... This woman, you have utterly destroyed her. No. No. Mrs Thorpe, I will not accept the services of this wretched woman. I, I loathe myself for what I have done. Look up. Look at me, Mrs Ebsmith. I decline your help. I decline it. I, I unsay all that I have said to her. It is too degrading. I will not have such an act upon my conscience. Mrs. Ebsmith, understand me. If you rejoin this man, I shall consider it a fresh outrage upon me. I hope you will keep with your friends. Forgive me. Sanford, tell your mother I have failed. I am not going back to England. Sybil! I must leave. Agnes, they, they sent me to the railway station. My brother told me you were likely to leave for Milan tonight. I, I ought to have guessed sooner that you were in the hands of this meddling parson and his sister. Why has my wife been here? Your wife? And the others? What scheme is afoot now? Why have you left me? Why didn't you tell me outright that I was putting you to too severe a test? You tempted me. You led me on to propose that I should patch up my life in that way. But it has had one good result. I know now how much I depend on you. Oh, I've had it all out with myself, pacing up and down that cursed railway station. And I don't deceive myself any longer. Agnes, this is the great cause of the unhappiness I've experienced of late years. I'm not fit for the fight and press of life. I wear no armour. I'm too horribly sensitive. My skin bleeds at a touch. Even flattery wounds me. Oh, the wretchedness of it. But you can be strong. At your weakest, there is a certain strength in you. With you, in time, I feel I shall grow stronger. Only I must withdraw from the struggle for a while. You, you, you must take me out of it and let me rest. Recover breath, as it were. Come, forgive me for having treated you ungratefully or almost treacherously. Tomorrow... We shall begin our search for our new home. Agnes? I have already found a home. Apart from me, you mean? Apart from you. No, 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 you'll not do that. Lucas, this evening, two or three hours ago, you planned out the life we were to lead in the future. We had done with madness, if you remember. Henceforth, we were to be mere man and woman. You agreed. Then? But we hadn't looked at each other clearly then, as mere man and woman. You the man? What are you? You've confessed. I lack strength. I shall gain it. Well, never from me. But what am I? Untrue to myself, as you are untrue to yourself? False to others, as you are false to others? Passionate, unstable, like yourself? Like yourself, a coward, 
<laughs> I was to lead women. I was to show them in your company how men and women may live independent and noble lives without rule, guidance or sacrament. I was to be the example, the figure set up for others to observe and imitate. But the figure was made of wax. It fell away at the first hot breath that touched it. You and I. <laughs> what a partnership it has been. No, go your way, Lucas, and let me go mine. Where? Where are you going? To Ketherick. I have to think, too, now, of the woman I have wronged, who came here tonight and spared me. Now go. Not like this, Agnes. Not like this. Lucas, when you have learned to pray again, I will remember you. Every day of my life. Pray. You. Now I wonder whether if he hurried to his wife at this moment, repentant, and begged her to relent, I wonder whether, whether she would, whether... Oh, I, I beg your pardon, you're not interested? Frankly, uh, we're not. No, other people's affairs are tedious. Well, a week in Venice, and the weather has been delightful. A pleasant journey. Oh, uh, Mrs. Ebbsmith! Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I, well, goodbye. The Notorious Mrs. Ebbsmith. Written by Arthur Wing Pinero. Adapted for audio by Claire Louise Amius. Directed by Pradeep J. Sound production, David Morley Hale. A Monkey with Symbols production, sponsored by Aspire Leadership, in aid of refuge. Please donate at bit.ly forward slash Ebsmith. Agnes, played by Claire Louise Amius. Duke of St. Olfitz, Dan March. Lucas and Antonio, Joseph Clauser. Gertrude Thorpe, Faye Morn. Reverend Amos Winterfield, David Morley Hale, Sir Sandford Cleave and Sir George Broderick, Jonathan Rigby, Dr. Kirk, Pradeep J, Fortune Sybil Nella and Hepzibah, Rachel Fletcher Hudson. Sound design and music by David Morley Hale, original artwork by Kitty Burtonshaw. With thanks to Oscar Kuglenu, Elton Town and Jones, Thomas Wilshire, Bridget Lambert, Holly Maples, Valeria Pires, and Caroline Geratnam Joyner. This production was remotely recorded in January 2021.